Sorry. <laughs> Got a lot of stuff down. Down there I had to unload. And if you want to purchase albums, Brad has a booth right out right out here. Twenty dollars a shot. Thank you, Brad, for doing that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. We're gonna do our scripture reading this morning. And then I think is Deb here? And Rocco, I think actually Deb is down there too. So we'll do scripture reading, then you can go down with Deb if you'd like. Okay. First Corinthians chapter seven. Verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's God's Word. Amen. Rocco, you're dismissed. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> Other people as well. <clears throat> so, God is pro body. God is pro-body. And God is pro-sex. Okay? So that's going to be the topic for today. So buckle up. It's not always thought to be, though. So when you look at church history, and you look at the Roman Catholic Church specifically, and how they exalt and sometimes demand celibacy for priests, and then if you look at some of the no's that we as Christians consistently say, about sex, sometimes we can preach a false message about the human body, desire, and sex. And so we must remember that we as Christians are not primarily a community of people who are against things, but we are a community of people with a message that is for something. And so Christians should not be known for their boycotts and bans, their sexual repression, their suppression, their prudishness, but for a positive vision of the goodness of the human body, 
the beauty and gift of sex in the context of the covenant of marriage and the glory of what it is to be a human being and have desire. So, we must not just rail on the problems of sinful sexual practices in our world, but put forth a passionate and beautiful vision of sexual practice in marriage between a man and a woman and not be shy about it. If we just paint a picture of what not to do, you can tear a lot of things down. But you can't build anything up. And we're to be builders and creators of something better than what the world has to offer. We must also remember that sex is an act of worship. Remember the context again. I'm big on context. The body is a temple. So, that means sex is not God, nor is sex gross, but that it is a good gift for married men and women to glorify God in their bodies. And so we're not to be like the world that tells and offers lies about sex and makes it into a God that will never satisfy, but only creates more and more enslavement, nor are we fundamentalists that pretty much think sex is kind of gross and we should just kind of move on to spiritual things. That too is a lie. And many conservative Christian families have fallen prey to it. God, again, is pro-body. God is pro-sex. And He wants us to know that. And He has been making that known in Paul's letter. So if I had to summarize this sermon, and I think each of these words is important. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift from God to be mutually and generously enjoyed in marriage to the glory of God. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift from God to be mutually and generously enjoyed in marriage to the glory of God. And singleness is also a gift where one abstains from sex with self-control to the glory of God. So again, it's about God and His glory. Marriage and singleness. The Christian options for sex are self-controlled celibacy in singleness or self-giving mutual sex in marriage. So that's the subject. Now we're going to look at the verses because it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what the Scriptures say. And I think it was Floyd and I were talking briefly the other day just about how sometimes the Scripture brings up a lot of stuff. Sometimes we want to deal with the Scripture. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes even translations can soften. I remember years ago I wrote a blog a long time ago about different ways that translations sometimes soften what the Bible is actually saying as if we can't handle it. Again, if you read the whole Bible, there's a lot of sex in it. There's a lot of stuff you don't always want to deal with in it all over the pages of the Bible. And so that's just reality. And we are not a kind of church that's going to avoid things. We preach through the Bible, verse by verse, verse by verse, whatever comes up that Sunday, whether we want to deal with it or don't want to deal with it, we're going to deal with it. We're not just going to pass over it. And that also keeps preachers from just kind of robbing, or excuse me, riding their own hobby horses all the time and kind of saying the same thing over and over again. All of us probably tend to do that in some way. But 
the benefit of going through verse by verse in the Scriptures is we get to hear what God says to us and what He has for us. So, verse 1. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, look at the quotation marks again. We talked about this last week. Notice how there's quotation marks around that part. There were before that in the Corinthian community, in the church, there were various cultural narratives, various slogans and things that were being believed. And so this was one of them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But that's a translation decision. So, when you read commentators and different things, you actually find out, and when you read other translations, some other translations say something different. Others say, a man does well not to marry. Or the NIV, and I think the 1984 version said, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. From my understanding, and again, I've said this before, I don't know Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, I like to read, um, but I don't know it. But from my understanding is that the... Translation should actually be what is here. That he's dealing with a cultural script because literally the word for sexual relations and a euphemism for that is used and not just the idea of marriage. That's what he's talking about. The ESV reflects the more literal translation. So the NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible, is known as a very literal translation, but sometimes it can be kind of wooden and not always really readable. And they say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's literally what it's saying. Well, again, touch a woman is a euphemism for sexual relations. So a lot of translations nowadays will have sexual relations translated here. So what's interesting is that apparently what was floating around Corinth was sexual abstinence, not just visiting prostitutes like in the previous versions. Excuse me, like in the previous verses. So we just got done reading about all this kind of sexual immorality and pornea and visiting prostitutes and hey, don't do that. Don't do that. That's a sin against your own body. You are a sacred temple. You are a sacred shrine. Don't go do that. So some people were doing that. Probably in that context, men visiting prostitutes. And so that was going on. But also, there was something else going on too which fits in the Corinthian mindset and all kinds of commentators try to plug in various things and reconstruct things, things we have to be careful with because we just got what the Bible says in front of us. So we've got to be careful what we kind of recreate. But it seems that there was this idea that sexual abstinence was a way to spirituality. So one scholar put it this way, sexual abstinence was widely viewed as a means to personal wholeness and a religious power. So that's a lot different than our culture, where where does wholeness come from? Where does kind of spirituality or, or healthy practices, healthy habits come from? Well, it comes from expressing your sexual passion in however way you want to, whether it's porn or polyamorous or heterosexual or homosexual, the way you get to be a whole human being is to express your sexuality however you want. But in this culture, not only was there one kind of cultural narrative that was going on about, hey, bodies aren't that big of a deal, so visiting prostitutes, cool. 
You can, you can go do that. But there was another like, oh, you know what? We abstain from the body. We're the super spiritual ones. We engage in philosophy and, and stoicism and, and the cynics and all those other kinds of things. We kind of avoid it. We've talked a lot about that. Kind of a Gnostic anti-body focus. And so that was probably floating around there as well. That abstinence was a way to spirituality. And Paul essentially says no. Paul is not an ascetic, which is interesting. So when you get to verse 2, what he's saying is, what is the antidote to a sex-crazed culture? That it isn't abstinence for married people but for more married sex. That's what he's saying. The antidote is more sex in marriage, which should surprise us. Maybe feels a little bit odd. But instead of using abstinence as a reason because of wild immoralities of the day, he's saying, get married and have sex in marriage. And so that's what Paul is saying. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and that word is actually a plural form, some say it's since there is so much immorality, which again he's been talking about, there's all kinds of porneia, all kinds of immorality in the culture. But Paul isn't just like, well, we as Christians, we just reject all that and we abstain. And that is the big goal of Christianity. That is not what he's saying. He encourages frequent sex in marriage as the antidote. So again, if you look at verse 2, that last phrase, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what's the reason? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, all kinds of immoralities, what do we do now? Well, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Again, here's an example of literal translations. Gordon Fee says this is the literal translation. He's actually even getting a bit further than that. He's saying, let each man be having his own wife and each woman be having her own husband. And yes, that sounds how you think it sounds. Paul is not an ascetic. He is single, but he's not an ascetic. There's actually other parts in, um, in, in I think it's Colossians and different places where he comes out harsh against asceticism trying to put down the fleshly stuff, that that can be its own version of spirituality which is a lie and ignores the body. Here's one background commentary. Many Greek thinkers, however, reasoned that sex without marriage was fine as long as it did not control a person. The more vulgar cynics even relieved their sexual passions publicly. For most Greek men under the age of 30, heterosex was most available... Hold on a second. Wrong spot. Pause. This is what happens when you print out way too many things in various sermons. Here we go. That was last week's sermon. Here is um, a commentator talking about that word have. The verb have occurs twice in the Greek text but has not been repeated in the translation for stylistic reasons. The verb occurs eight times in the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament with the meaning have sexual relations with and that nine times elsewhere in the New Testament has the same meaning. So, he is not an ascetic. 
which of course we know it's not just him. Again, we've talked about that a lot. How we, we are whole Bible people. We want to understand what the whole Bible is saying. We are Old Testament and New Testament Christians. And I was thinking about Proverbs. Proverbs has a very similar situation. Again, the context here, sexual morality, what's he say? Well, wife and husband, husband and wife be together. Listen to Proverbs chapter 5. Very similar. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. So the warning, a context of immorality, of adultery. And what's the recommendation? Don't be intoxicated in, in, in other sexual moralities. Husbands, be intoxicated in your wife. And Paul, vice versa. Wives, be intoxicated with your husband. And here's something else interesting. Notice how there's no mention of procreation here. And so, again, he is emphasizing the goodness of sexual desire and sexual pleasure. He doesn't say, hey, because of sexual morality, you should get married because sex is really just for procreation. No, it's actually more than that. Verse 3. The husband should not give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise, excuse me, the husband should give, man, I've said excuse me a lot today. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And this is very important. It is addressed to both. So mutuality, not like the priority of manhood or something. It is mutuality. There's another commentator. The principle that spouses must render to each other that which is owed fits a general perception that marriage brings certain debts. What is striking is that Paul addresses the wife as directly as the husband, contrary to the usual pattern in the ancient world of addressing men and instructing women indirectly. The verb, let him fulfill, is a third-person imperative and places a requirement on the spouses. The husband shall fulfill and likewise the wife. What is due is another euphemism for sex. And so here is another one. Paul's concern is for mutuality, reciprocity, and most especially the presupposition that sexual intimacy provides mutual pleasure remains distinctive and far ahead of its times. Paul declares that prolonged or permanent sexual abstinence in effect robs the spouse of his or her rights. So that phrase, conjugal rights, it's actually used in other parts of the Bible. So that verb refers to financial debts in Matthew 18.32 and it refers to taxes in Romans 13.7. I'm thinking, wow, it's not very romantic, Paul. But 
That again is the understanding of the word and, the, and other places in which that word has been used. But I think this is really important. This is the kicker. This does not mean that married couples make sexual demands. That is sin. But the context, the emphasis is sexual generosity. So Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, says the emphasis is on not you owe me, but I owe you. So an attitude of you owe me is not what Paul is saying. That is a sinful attitude. So it's not unrighteous self-serving demand, but righteous self-giving generosity. And so sex is not to be used manipulatively by either withholding or demanding. And a while ago I talked about the relationship between lust and anger. And I mentioned how in Matthew 5 Jesus has lust in there and then he's got anger in there right next to each other. And how sometimes what can happen is that if there is withholding or demanding, it's also because there is anger at times rooted there. Or, oh, you didn't do this for me? I'm going to turn to porn and it's your fault. That's a lie. That is evil. That is sinful. That is not what Paul is saying. And we must watch for sometimes issues of lust or sexual immorality also reveal other things underneath. And sometimes it's anger and power. And so we must beware of that in our hearts. Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So again, it's both. He's speaking to both. It's, this whole context is mutuality. He's not raising one spouse above the other spouse or the needs of one spouse above the other spouse. It is all clothed in mutuality. Here's another commentator. The assertion that neither the husband nor the wife is master of his or her own body reinforces the previous verse and explains why husbands and wives must not withhold what is due physically to their partners. It assumes that they have given themselves over to each other in their marriage commitment. Paul does not frame this relationship in terms of the husband's rights and the wife's duties, nor does he expect the wife to submit passively as a compliant bed partner. She's an equal partner because she possesses her husband's body in the same way. Both husband and wife are to recognize that their spouse has a greater claim on them when they have on themselves. Neither can claim to have authority over his or her own body and disavow further sexual relationship with the marriage partner. So again, this is not about demands. This is about belonging to the other. It's about oneness. As spouses, sometimes nowadays we chop things up. Like, well, one spouse does one part of the finances and the other spouse, we split checking accounts, we split all different kinds of stuff. And it's like, hey, this whole thing, the whole picture is about union and the picture is about oneness outside of just sex. The whole thing is about becoming one. And as Brad said earlier, because it's pointing to something even greater. The oneness of God with man. The oneness of God with humanity. The utter closeness that that 
will be and the unification that will take place of the whole person. We will all be caught up in the very oneness of God. And so, in verse 4, we see speaking to both. Mutuality. And we, of course, see that in Song of Solomon. You look at Song of Solomon, again, there's all kinds of debates over. Sometimes it's like the man talking. It's, you know, like some translations will have man and then woman and others and the party or the people around come and say this and then the man says this and the woman says this and back and forth and who's saying what. But the point is, it's mutual. They're both there. And nobody's shy. And they're verbal about it. And there's invitation. So, when you read Song of Solomon, you see this. This is Old Testament in action of what marriage should look like. There's invitation, there's longing, there's delight. It's not just about some dude with a sex drive. It's both and. That's what the Bible says. Verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Do not deprive, so that word is defraud. The same word that was used earlier. The same word that was used earlier in chapter 6. Remember that when we were talking about lawsuits? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So we're saying, hey, don't defraud one another in this area. Here's another commentator. The verb translated deprive can also mean rob, steal, defraud, and likens abandoning conjugal relations to reneging on a debt. The force of the present imperative is generally to command the action as an ongoing process and may imply that some are refusing sex with their spouses and Paul commands them to stop. But I also want to pause here for a minute because, as always, I cannot nuance every single thing in this sermon. And this sermon, because all of us are sexually broken, Meaning we've had things in some way probably happen to us that were not okay. We're also sexual sinners, meaning we ourselves have engaged in some, whether it's just in the heart or with another person or with their net pornography or whatever. The point is, this is complicated. This is really complicated. There's a lot of questions that I can't answer all today. And I just want to speak briefly. Obviously, when there is abuse in a situation, this area of life is going to be very challenging. Okay? And I'm talking about not even in the marriage. I'm talking about outside of the marriage. Is still, sex in the bedroom is going to have challenges. And so, the encouragement would be, get help. The encouragement would be, get help. If you have unresolved trauma, get help. Talk to somebody. It also, there is sin, like I've mentioned. To make demands, to use manipulation, is sinful. To look at pornography is sinful. To commit adultery is sinful. So, if that is happening in any, on any spectrum, we need to repent to our spouse. To repent to our spouse. If there's just kind of run-of-the-mill, like everybody has problems, <laughs> we need to communicate. We might need counseling. We might need therapy. So, I just want to speak to that. Back to 7. 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, probably what's going on is there's some people that were the super spiritual people like, well, hey, I don't even need that. Even in my marriage, well, I can kind of abandon you and I'm going to go off and do my spiritual thing over here. And he's saying, no, that actually has to be by agreement, both people, and for a limited time. So, yes, that should happen, that can happen. But it's limited, and again, it's mutual. But when that does happen, devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So a kind of sexual fasting that is mutual. So we can't use hyper-spirituality to not have sex. Again, there may be reasons of why that shouldn't be had. And again, let me pause again. There's age. There's health reasons. There again are trauma reasons, sinful reasons. There are all kinds of reasons that legitimately to not have sex or can't have sex. So let's just put that out there as obvious. We must understand that. And we must be sensitive to different spouses and all of those issues as well. But to be using it as kind of a spiritual excuse or God's not that into the body or I just kind of have my own spiritual disciplines, it's kind of like saying, well, sex itself is a spiritual discipline. So then come together again. So so why? So what's the reason? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But even with that, the one spouse doesn't just get to blame the other spouse. Oh, I committed adultery because you were never there for me. That too can be a lie. That person is responsible for it. They are responsible for their own sin. Period. To say it that way would be to use it in a manipulative way, which Paul is not speaking of. But, yes, in a world full of immoralities, in a world full of temptation, he's saying, hey, husbands and wives, generally, without the various things I've nuanced, the general rule should be regular sexual practice. Verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, So here we have another translation thing or like which part's he saying? Where is he making the concession? Is it on the next part or is it on the part before? And again, I don't know for sure. (laughs) If it's kind of on the thing before, he's kind of saying, maybe I'm kind of conceding to the ones who were talking about abstinence of, hey, yeah, uh, you know, if if you're going to abstain, but again, it's just going to be for this tiny limited time, the whole bulk is it's got to be mutual and together. Or is it referring to his um, push on singleness. In verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. Then he's saying, hey, that's not necessarily a command, but I'm just kind of saying, I wish that all were as I am. And there's debates over whether it was Paul, because Paul wasn't married at this time, but, but did he end up having a spouse? Did the spouse die? It's a good possibility, because I think in that culture it was pretty normal for, the, for him to potentially have had a, had a spouse. But as of that time, he is single. And he says, each has his own gift from God, one from a kind and one from another. So here it is again. Each one is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. And we need to view them that way. It's a gracious gift that God gives. And so marriage is not some like, well, that's kind of like the first rank. 
sometimes this can happen in churches. It's all talked about marriage and sex and families. And, but no, we have widowers. We have issues of divorce. We have all kinds of other things that go on. And singleness um, is a gift. And so we should view it as that. And you should enjoy that as a single person. Because as he goes on in this chapter, there's all kinds of reasons. Hey, the married person is full of all kinds of stuff. Family and kids and the wife's got to deal with the husband and the husband's got to deal with the wife and, and bills and, you know, like, and all kinds of stuff. And singleness, you can really kind of devote to one thing. It's you. You and God free you up for all kinds of things. What a wonderful thing. And so that too is a gift. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. So again, goodness of single. It's great. It's not like you've got to have a bunch of pressure to get married as if that's the number one spiritual thing in the world. It's not. It can also be single. It can be good to remain single. But, there's the but again, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So singleness is not self-control. But if you are single, you should engage in self-control. So, in our world, sometimes we can view the self and the whole person as if sexual fulfillment was kind of our main identity. And that's not true. Our main identity is that we are created by God and as Christians that He is King and He is Lord. So He is the first authority and priority. So to be a whole person is not equal to sexual, to sexual fulfillment, which I think is a lie that our culture tells. Again, we can read all that we said before and say, like, wow, sex sounds great. Better, better just do that. And he's saying, well, no, that's not just how you be a sexually whole human being. You can be a whole human being and be single for all of your life devoted to King Jesus, and that's a wonderful thing. And so our culture lies about that, as if you must be sexually fulfilled to be a whole, flourishing person. It's not true. But, if you don't have self-control, then you should marry. There's a background commentary. Burn... The NIV, NRSV, and TEV interpret correctly by adding with passion, which is what the ESV does. So that part's added. Trying to fill out what burn means. Burn was used throughout ancient romances to describe the arousal of passion, often metaphorically through Cupid's fiery darts. Good old Cupid. Whereas Greco-Roman literature in general saw nothing wrong with passion, Paul believes that its proper place is only in marriage, and he advocates two alternatives, either self-control or marriage. So, kind of back to my little summary at the beginning. Christian options. Self-control, self-controlled celibacy in singleness, or self-giving mutual sex in marriage. Those are the options. And self-control is a beautiful thing. And man, what a countercultural way to live right now. To be able to show the world the gift of being self-controlled and the gift of celibacy. So I just want to encourage you who are single that that can be a beautiful 
gift and a slap in the face to the lies of the world and to live a life that shows how that is beautiful and wonderful and that that is a whole person. So be encouraged in that. And married couples to be encouraged that God is pro-body, God is pro-sex, and to enjoy that. And all the different issues and baggages that come with that to continue to move forward and to communicate and to repent and to engage in all those other things um, that God calls us to. So, God speaks to all of the areas of our lives where we love to hear it. Some of this can be very exciting or where we don't really want to hear it because it can bring up hurt, can bring up sin, can bring up all kinds of other things. But God and in His Word is going to speak to us because it is good for us and because He wants us to build and create something beautiful because we are temples. And so if you're a single temple, use it for the glory of God. If you are a married temple, build it for the glory of God and show the beauty of, of, of God and love for one another. All of that because it's pointing to union with God. Union with God. Devotion to Him. And so thinking about communion. Communion. What do we do? We show our union with King Jesus by tangibly putting liquid and material food into our very tangible bodies, showing the union and devotion to God and reminding ourselves that it's not just about me and my needs and my rights and this, that, or the other thing. No, it's about me under God and as a worshiper of God in whatever state that I currently am in. And so we remember. We remember that we are sinners. We are sufferers. That God has forgiven us by what He has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And we, Christ, and we remind ourselves that. And we repent of our sin. It means it's to be like a pausing and a, man, maybe there's some areas in here somewhere that I've blown it as a single person or as a husband or as a wife I can repent and I can receive forgiveness and so we do this right now where we are going to take communion to remember our ultimate union with the king of the universe the, the ultimate romance that, that Brad mentioned that all of this stuff is pointing to that's what we're going to do So let's stand together and uh, we'll sing the communion song and as the song is going you can come forward and gather the elements if, if you uh, want to partake with us today and then just hold it for the time when we are all served and we'll celebrate together. So This next song is uh, Majesty I believe.
I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Well, it's good to have you here today. God bless you this week. Remember whose child you are as you go out the doors into the world. Uh, keep in prayer our loved ones and the Hapgoods and the homebound and all those. Don't forget them And uh, as we go this week. But let's close with the last song and then you'll be dismissed. I think there's some snacks back in the back. And uh, stay and visit for a few minutes if you can.